Hello and welcome to another episode of Stolen Droids Presents. Uh, this week, we have a very special guest, Fred Schroeder. Fred, go ahead, say hi. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're joined also with uh, Zoner and Schmitty. Now, Fred, we need to get right into immediately why you're here and why we are so excited to have you on the show. Because we've had a lot of guests over the years, but I, I dare say not one that we've been so excited for what you're premiering. Oh, wow. Thank you, guys. That's awesome. So uh, tell us a bit about Stripped. Well, Stripped is a documentary I, I co-directed with a web cartoonist named Dave Kellett. And it's uh, sort of a love letter to comic strips. And we've um, been working on it for the last uh, four or five years. And uh, we interviewed over 70 cartoonists, among them Jim Davis and Kathy Geiswyth, and also our big Probably our big news is that we have the first um, recorded interview with Bill Watterson of uh, Calvin and Hobbes fame. And then he was also nice enough to do um, our poster for us, uh, which is the first piece of comic art I guess he's done in 19 years. And you can tell it's him. It is definitely, uh, I mean, it's just 100% Watterson. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, when we um, got the sketch, it was kind of, like we could tell like the he has a desk lamp in it and that looks like the desk lamp he used in other comic strips and it was sort of crazy to see a you know a new piece of artwork by this this artist that we both admired for you know decades and then he it was made it even more special that it was doing it for you know our little movie which was amazing now, um, where what came from? We should go back a little bit. You mentioned that he's a web cartoonist, but Dave um, is actually a cartoonist of one that we love. It's Sheldon. Yes, um, we brought him up here on the show because uh, Sheldon's been a big. We, we're all big fans of Sheldon. Yeah, so he's done he's done Sheldon for um, over ten years now online at um, SheldonComics.com, and it's kind of a fun. It started out as a fun little premise about, um, uh, you know, an eight-year-old kid who invents a piece of software and becomes a billionaire, and but still lives with his, you know, his grandfather, and then a talking duck, and uh, a pug, and a lizard, and they have kind of adventures. It's now like over the course of ten years, sort of evolved into basically, I think Dave's brain and opinion on anything and everything pop culture related and, and everything else. Um, but he also does a strip that my favorite strip, actually, he does a science fiction strip called drive. Um, I think it's drivecomic.com is where that's found. And that's sort of like his take on, um, you know, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy meets uh, Dune in a weird way. Um, and I think that that strip is pretty amazing as well, but he's, he's a fun guy and a great, I mean, it, I couldn't have asked for a better person to collaborate with on a documentary about comics because he also has um, two degrees in comics history as well. Um, so he's sort of a an all-around comics expert guy. And then it's just like fun and funny to be around <laughs> all the time. And, and when you're making a movie, that goes a long way for sure. Now, it- you say he has degrees in comic comics history. I didn't know that was a thing. I think I went to the wrong school because my school <laughs> just had like 
I, I got a degree in IT. Uh, I, how, how does one go about getting a degree like that? Because that sounds absolutely amazing. Well, um, I would love that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. When I heard he had those degrees, and not only one, but two, um, I was super jealous uh, and also felt like, what have I been doing wrong? And, and how did you convince your parents that this was a good idea <laughs> to get not one, but two comics degrees? Um, but he got, his, he was at the University of Notre Dame and sort of, um, from there, he went to um, UC San Diego and did a specialized um, history degree focused on comics. I may be getting this a little wrong. And then from there, he went to the University of Kent in England and got a specialized um, history of comics focusing on um, a, a master's thesis about um, uh, political cartoonists in World War II, specifically um, a guy named John Lowe, who specialized in in wartime um, political cartoons. And uh, Dave wrote a big dissertation on that, um, I don't know, years ago. So he has like this invested, um, you know, um, respect for the arts and the history of comic strip, um, which made him the perfect collaborator for a documentary about the subject because, you know, it's, it's having an expert and a practitioner on hand all the time. So if ever I had a question about, well, how do you do this? Or what, what would this, how big was this guy back in the day? You know, Dave either had the answer or knew where to find the answer, um, which is great. You know, I can't ask for a better partner in making a documentary. Well, and let's talk a bit about that too. How did this collaboration start? I mean, how did you guys get the idea? Hey, let's hook up and make this love story about comics. Well, originally I approached Dave because I wanted to make a documentary. You know, I'm a filmmaker and a cinematographer mostly. That's mostly how I make my living. And what's interesting about movies is they're, they're truly collaborative. Like you're always you know, you're, it's really rare if you're making a movie all by yourself. It's always another person, at least even an actor or somebody, is helping you out. But I thought it would be interesting to go into artist studios where it's just them, you know, like a painter or a sculptor or a cartoonist. And Dave, I had been friends with for years, and he was one of the subjects I wanted to um, put on film. You know, you know, what is a cartoonist's daily routine in the studio like? And so I approached him about doing that, and he was, you know, he was like, this sounds great. Um, and then uh, he took me to lunch and said, you know, I've been thinking about your documentary, and I was, you know, we love comics. We're always talking comics whenever we get together. Have you thought about doing a documentary just focused on comic strips and what's happening? And I thought, well, no, but that sounds like a great idea, and I can't believe that there hasn't been another movie about comic strips made like why i've i've wanted to see this movie for a long time and dave has too so we did a test we went down to um san diego area where um uh, a cartoonist named greg evans who does a strip called luann lives and he was very nice and generous with his time and we sort of did a four-hour interview with him just to sort of see what avenues we could pursue on a documentary about this subject. And by the end of it, we were, we, we 
I knew we had a movie and I started, to, you know, we were driving back to Los Angeles and I said, Dave, we have a movie here. We could go this way or this way. And at the time, this is, you know, four years ago, newspapers were really in serious trouble. You know, there were closing left and right. And we really had a sense that um, maybe this art form is, might be going away in the way that we've come to know it and appreciate it in the newspapers. So we wanted to capture this particular moment in time, and we thought it was very prescient. Um, as we continue to make it, it sort of shifted from a disaster movie to really a, a love letter to the medium because we, we just found so many parallels between web cartoonists and, and traditional print cartoonists, and we really wanted to celebrate this art form that, that kind of gets the short end of the stick a lot of the time and really hasn't I think gotten its due and hasn't been appreciated the way um, real, you know, everybody sort of appreciate it. Everybody has these, these great warm feelings, I think about the medium and we wanted to take advantage of that and, and really delve into the, um, the subject matter that way. Well, and it's funny, kind of funny you bring it up that way. The warm feeling uh, we're a geek site, you know, and we even, we even have a, a podcast about comic books, but not comic strips. Um, bit of a confession to all of our listeners. I didn't grow up with comic books. My parents didn't really understand why I'd ever want them. And I really wasn't into the characters back then. I grew up with comic strips. I had four different Calvin and Hobbes books. Okay. Confession. (laughs) Um, they were my mom's. I stole them from her. I think when I moved back in, uh, I was like 19 years old. I moved back in and she stole them back. That's hilarious. I'll have to steal them before she dies, so my brother doesn't get them. Uh, you know, but I had I had Far Side anthologies. I had Peanuts books. I had Mother Goose and Grimm. I think I had four different Garfield books. Uh, I had Happy Acres, which is Jim Davis' other one. I lived and breathed comic strips, not comic books. And then I moved out. You know, turn of the century happened, which is a weird thing to realize. We can call that. And I went to web comics, you know, dialed up on a 56 K modem going to all these different websites. And so, yeah, warm happies is the way I would describe comic strips. You know, a lot of my childhood is based in them. Yeah. They talk about, um, peanuts, you know, the Charlie Brown and Charles Schultz, um, and, and why that had such an enduring impression and, and connection with so many people over the years. And um, when he would talk about it, Charles Schultz would say he tried to draw with warmth. He tried to give a sense of what the character was feeling or what the, you know, as he was drawing it. So if he was um, drawing, you know, a happy Snoopy, he wanted to be feeling a happy Snoopy. And I think that comes through in those little simple drawings um, to a reader, especially someone who's who's engaged with these these little characters every day. You know, it's sort of a daily routine and a daily relationship that they're having. And that's something um, I think I love comic books as well, and I think they're amazing. But it's it's a different relationship between what a comic book does and what a comic strip does, and I think. Part of that is the is the daily interaction you have with a comic strip, where it is like visiting your 
or checking in on your friends, you know, every day, which is what you did with a newspaper. And, and I think what you do online too, especially for a lot of the, the web strips that do update, you know, on a daily basis, you get that little ping in your, in your inbox on your email or in your RSS feed, you know, RSS feed. <laughs> um, but that's part of it, you know? Well, yeah. And, and every day, every morning I get into work, I sure hope my boss isn't listening, but you know, my day job, I get into work and I immediately open up my bookmark group and there's like 25 bookmarks in there that all load up at once. And I just hit my dailies. Uh, and it's funny, you, you mentioned peanuts. I think I mentioned it first, but I have, I have Woodstock over my shoulder here on my bookshelf. Oh, that's amazing. And in fact, our other show, Squishy's Comics and Movies, brought up that just this week, uh, the new trailer for the new Peanuts movie came out from Blue Sky. Yeah. What did you guys think of that? Um, the voice seemed off. Charlie really? Brown's voice. I, I it couldn't quite get into it. But otherwise, so far, I mean, it's real teaser trailer. Yes. Yeah. But I'm like, hey, you know what? They just made a Lego movie that surpassed all expectations of all <laughs> movies ever. Sure, why not? Let's do Peanuts. I was, yeah, really, I, I was really surprised. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, no, I'm sorry. I, I was actually very surprised as well. It, I, I didn't expect much of it. I didn't even know they were making it. If I had, I probably would have been upset that Hollywood's ripping off something else, you know, he that's that not original. <laughs> I, I have anger issues. I'll just leave it at that. But um, I, I was pleasantly surprised. I, I'm kind of excited for it. And I think as far as the Charlie Brown voice suit, you're probably used to the Charlie Brown Christmas special voice from the 60s. So maybe that's your issue. Oh, well, not even the 60s one. There's a newer one from like the late 80s. Oh, yeah. yeah they, there's the that. show that he, they used to have, the Saturday morning um, show. I was surprised, too. I expected it not like when I think of peanuts, I think of 2D drawings, you know, like mm-hmm. like the Christmas specials. So I expected not to like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Um, and I and I didn't think it was terrible. I think it actually captured um, the spirit of peanuts pretty well. And Dave, we watched it together. Dave and I watched it together, and he commented he thought they sampled the voice from the old cartoons. That's not the new voice that they're using but he may be wrong about that. Well, and maybe it just, it felt like there was a disconnect and I couldn't put my finger on it. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's the same old voice. They tried to clean up a bit and then put onto that 3d image was just a little bit off. But again, as a teaser, that's not going to be the project. Right. And I'm not discounting it just because of that. That was just my, my initial reaction. Yeah. I thought it was interesting though. And I, I'm, it, I didn't hate it. That's that's the the good news. And that's always and, a good start, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm excited to see um, what they do with it because it seems like we just haven't heard from Peanuts in a long time. I know they did a recent, um, they did that recent special. Was it a year ago or last year? They've been really busy on uh, MetLife. Yeah, and just the MetLife <laughs> stuff. And I, I, I would like to see. I would like to see peanuts come back and, and well, they're also the mascots stuff. of uh what Knott's Berry farm, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Little known fact. <laughs> the voice of Sally was done by Fergie from black eyed peas. Not really? the 66 version. No, the, the cartoon, the Saturday morning <laughs> cartoons. That was Fergie. Oh, I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. See, 
you guys really are geeks, you know. <laughs> you delve deep. I, I spent a lot of time on Wikipedia. Well, okay, so <laughs> you guys moved into the web comics part. And yeah. I don't know if this is obviously we haven't seen the movie yet. The movie premiered on the twenty sixth, which should be the day this is coming out, and it's gonna hit iTunes. We should hit yeah, that up it, to people. Yeah, it hits iTunes um April first, and we're trying to get everybody to buy it on that day. So if you're listening to that to this on the twenty sixth, please, you know, either pre order or uh download it on iTunes on the on the first, because we're trying to get it up to number one with the sort of grassroots campaign. You know, it's just uh, Dave and I were self-releasing it and you know, doing all the publicity and all the all the <laughs> manufacturing and all that stuff ourselves. So we're trying to be the little engine that could a little bit. Um, and it comes out, I think, the same week as Justin Bieber's documentary. So that's oh, our we big- have to get this one up to number one. <laughs> So that's our big competition. So I mean, on principle alone now. Yeah. So a vote for us is a vote against Justin Bieber. So you can look at it that way. <laughs> but, but in the trailer, and I don't know if it was, this was on purpose, but it seemed kind of like there's a definite rift between the print comics and the online comics, where the print comics just don't understand those quote-unquote whimper snappers and what they're doing with their inner tubes and whatnot. And then you have kind of the web comics where they're just going, Hey, you know, I think you even say it in the trailer, get with it, old man. This is just how we do things now. Yeah. We, we use a quote from Chris Hastings where he said, get with the times old man who he does a strip called uh, Dr. McNinja. Um, yeah. It, it's definitely a, a period of transition that's happening now that I think we saw with, with music in the early part of the, 2000s um we're seeing it with movies now and we're definitely seeing it with um with print media and what what's happened with um periodicals with magazines and with uh, newspapers and i think there is a sense from traditional syndicated comic strips that look we've had this system that's worked for you know decades and now you're asking us to throw that all away to embrace the web and the way that web cartoonists do it. And I think, you know, that's not an unfair resistance to have when you've, when you're, you know, someone like Mel Lazarus, who's in his eighties now and trying to expect him to sort of um, run a website now and sell, you know, books himself, you know, while after he's done, you know, syndicated and the syndicated method for the last 40 years um so there's a certain resistance i think there from old school cartoonists um who've been doing this for a long long time but i think some of the younger guys you know in their 30s or 40s people like um stefan pastis who does pearls before swine is much more willing to sort of dip his toe in the waters of the way web cartoonists do things um which is very different. It's a very different series of hats that a web cartoonist has to wear as opposed to a traditional syndicated um, uh, comic strip artist, you know? Well, and, and even like one of the ones I check daily is Dilbert, which right. kind of makes sense that Dilbert, a comic about engineers would be on the web, but Dilbert.com, you go there and that's a better built site and a more regular update schedule than most of these born on the web artists yeah well and that's a 
that's a rare exception, I would say. And because Scott Adams comes from a very tech tech savvy, you know, point of view, you know, he he was building websites before you could build a website, it feels like. Um but a lot of these guys, like say um Matt Inman who does the oatmeal, um, he started out as a, a programmer and as a um search engine optimizer you know, guy. And so he had a very, um, you know, tech savvy back background in terms of being able to build his site and get it to the place where it is now, where he gets, you know, hundreds of thousands of hits and really knows how to manipulate that world, that online world of, of how to make something, you know, go viral and how to really make a living off of the internet, which I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out how do you do that? Uh, and, I, and I remember, too, because, again, I said when I moved out, and that was about 99, 2000, that's when I discovered web comics. And the first ones I discovered were Megatokyo by Fred Gallagher and uh, um, Real Life Comics by Greg Dean. Oh, yeah, great. And, are- and at the time, it was like, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting. They're doing it on the web. And I remember both of them, and it was about the same time they announced on their blogs that they had quit their day job. And we're now doing this full time and you could now buy their book. And yeah. it seemed so, oh my gosh, you've really made it when a web comic can be printed in the same way that all this actual print comics were, but that doesn't quite feel the same way anymore. Like why even bother? <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it's interesting. I think there's a, there's a big, um, dichotomy. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but, um, between everybody wanting a virtual object, you know, like a, a PDF or something that can transfer from their phone to their tablet, to their laptop, to their television, or having an actual physical object that that is unique and um, very well crafted. You know, sites like Etsy sort of take off because of that. Like people do want something that's that has a handmade uniqueness to it that they can have in their hands. So on the one hand, I think there's a large demand for um, physical objects and physical manifestations of media. But on the other hand, there's a a huge shift to everything being virtual. You know, I think DVD sales and how much they're sort of plummeting is evidence that it's it's just more convenient to have a digital file of a movie than to carry around an object, you know. And so it's a weird thing to try to make your living because there's, there's, I think, an assumption that if it's a digital file, there's less value to it. You know, the idea of a, of a digital file in music, I think a whole generation of kids have grown up assuming that that's free, you know, and it's not. It, I, I don't think it should be, <laughs> but, well, you know, everybody assumes music is free now. You're not wrong on that either. I mean, um, Calvin and Hobbes, you can go online and Google it and find any number of strips. But what few people know is that there's actually a book called Teaching with Calvin and Hobbes. And you can find it online for around five grand. If you're lucky. Because it's so rare. It's so hard to find. And it's not online. So in that way, by not putting his stuff online in that manner, partially because... You know, Calvin and Hobbes stopped production in '95. Uh, yes, before the internet really got started, but it keeps it kind of special in a way. 
yeah, there's a there is there is a there's an artifact quality to it and to I think what people want to have is this sense that they're getting a, a little piece of history and, and also and also this unique object, you know. On the one hand, I think on the other hand, most people are just whatever's the easiest thing. Um, give that to me that way, you know, but there is a whole segment of, of collectors and, and, you know, people like me who collect things like laser discs and, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, old board games and things like that, um, that spend money on these kind of things. And then other people who are really just interested in what's, what's the easiest thing. Well, and it, you say that I have a display case downstairs just filled with old technology that can't be used anymore. <laughs> but at the same time, I I would go out and buy. Uh, I want to say I saw it uh, just today while I was doing a bit of research for this interview. But there's like a leather bound three volume set of all Calvin and Hobbes, and I would buy that. And yeah. As much as I love Penny Arcade, and sorry to Jerry and Mike, I probably wouldn't buy an anthology of all of Penny Arcade because I've read through all of it, and I could they're cross referenced, they're indexed. I could pull one up in a moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I have that leather-bound Calvin Hobbes collection, and, and it's great. And that's what I—that's how I love to experience the strips. You know, that's that's great. Um, I also I I still like physical media. So, like, there's a great strip that Chris Straub does called Brood Hollow, and I did his—I supported his Kickstarter, so I got a really great like hardcover book of his online strip. And I, I love that too. I love to experience it daily or I guess it's a weekly online, but I also love to hold this object that he crafted and, you know, there's you put a lot of time and effort into it. And, and there's something about that experience that is really special. Same with, um, there's another strip called the abominable Charles Christopher by Carl Kershaw. That's a, just a beautiful strip. Like it, it's an animal strip, and it's just gorgeously and just beautifully painted by um, Carl Kershaw, this amazing Canadian um, comic artist. And he released a book of that that was leather bound and embossed, and then had a texture to it, so it felt like it was kind of this suede, fuzzy feeling book and it was just great it was just a great i think just the art of making that book is worth getting it you know it's so beautiful um there's something to that that i still you know go into maybe i'm in the minority but i think it it something will be lost if if people stop making books and objects you know i totally agree with you my wife and i were actually cleaning out our garage a few uh, well a few months ago i think and i came across a box of books and i was looking through it thinking okay i never read these books anymore i'm gonna just get rid of a bunch of them and as i started looking through i came across a bunch of my far side books and growing up i loved gary larson i mean, it was far side was my favorite comic probably it's it's still up there my all-time favorites and i i took the i took these handful of books and I put them in the pile to go to Goodwill. And I looked at them and I thought, no, those are not going. <laughs> they are staying here and they will stay here forever until I die. And, you know, I, so yeah, I can totally relate to what you're saying. It, and 
you know, Gary Larson, his stuff, that's tough to find now. I mean, it's not out there on the internet. And so, yeah, he, um, he ended up being sort of even more reclusive than, than Bill Watterson to get a hold of. Like we weren't able to get him in our movie, unfortunately. And to the point where he even requested that we not use any of his strips in our film. Um, so he's become very um, protective and doesn't really want his strips online at all. Um, it's really interesting. And I, th- I know that his syndicate has been, you know, dealing with him, trying to get him to, you know, be more web savvy and have his strips out there uh, because they're worried that people are going to forget about the far side, which I think would be a tragedy because it's, sorry, go ahead. I, I just don't no I don't know why he is so um, sort of stepped away so much from comics. Um, I don't have any idea, but it seems like he just, he doesn't have a care about it or doesn't, or kind of wants it to fade away. I don't, I don't know. I hope not though. Well, I know Watterson, um, not that I've ever spoken with him personally, but it was reported that he was really kind of upset with (laughs) how people kept wanting to commercialize his stuff. Um, and, and in his eyes kind of misuse it. I mean, you see those Calvin peeing on something stickers all over the place. And every time I see it, I just want to go up to someone's car and key it. Um, yeah, it's just the worst. It really is the worst. Or then I, I actually saw a huge truck. We are in Utah. Uh, well, the three of us are, you're not, but, (laughs) and of course it's this dually with these upright stacks. And on one side is Calvin peeing on a Ford sticker. And on the other side is Calvin praying at a cross. What? And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what the crap? (laughs) Bipolar Calvin. It's like, I want to shoot out your windows because that's not Calvin. Neither one is Calvin. Did you ever even read the comics? Because if you did, you'd know who this was. And, and reportedly that was one of the reasons why Watterson thought, you know, it's kind of run its course. I don't want to do this. And I'm really sick of people trying to market it. Well, he's, he definitely is against marketing his strip, for sure. Um, he gave a very sort of famous speech in I think, 1988 at the Festival of Cartoon Art at Ohio State. He actually gave this um, public lecture to a bunch of cartoonists, among them Jim Davis, um, were sitting in the audience about the cheapening of the comics and how when you dilute the purity of the medium, the comic strip into plush toys and posters and calendars and TV specials. You're every time you do that, you're taking a little bit of the power of the simplicity of the strip away. Um, so he never wanted to have, you know, a Calvin doll or Hobbes plush toy or an animated series or anything like that. And he got huge offers from, just about everybody, including Steven Spielberg. And uh, that, to him, was the antithesis of what he did as a comic strip artist, that, as a cartoonist. That's not what um, a cartoon is supposed to do. And he also lamented um, the presentation of strips in the newspaper and how there used to be so much more respect for the comics in, say, the days of 
you know, Windsor McKay and Little Nemo and Slumberland, where they would be, you know, full page broadsheets of this beautiful art, you know, this really detailed stuff. And the comics page was getting smaller and smaller to the point where you couldn't even read the strip. You know, you couldn't see the art. Um, and they're, the syndicates seemed more interested in how many toys they could sell as opposed to how clear and, and beautiful the, the strip was presented to an audience. So I know that was a big, huge issue for him and something that a lot of people don't understand because people just don't understand, like, well, they're going to give you money. Why don't you want to take the money? You know, I'm guessing um, Jim Davis was uh, sleeping through that speech. <laughs> well, um, we talked to Davis. Davis Sorry, that was a, mean. <laughs> Davis is a is an interesting guy, and what was great about Davis is he understood. Like he said, he just had a different point of view than what um, he had of what they did. Like his whole point of making Garfield was he was um, an assistant for a. Um, a cartoonist named Tom Ryan who did a strip called Tumbleweeds that was sort of a Western strip uh, for years. And he was trying to come up with his own strip idea and make his own strip um, for years and years. And he looked around and saw, you know, there's all these dog strips. There's Snoopy, there's Fred Bassett, Marmaduke, um, but there's no cat strips. And I know a lot of people have cats and I bet I can make a cat strip and then if it got popular enough, I could release like a, a little doll and then I could have two revenue streams, the comic strip and uh, the doll. And that would be great. And I could, you know, maybe own my own house, um, cut to, you know, 20 years later and he's worth a billion dollars nearly. And you can find Garfield on just about anything you can think of. There's a Garfield version, um, to the point where we, we took a tour of his – he has this amazing facility in, um, in Muncie, Indiana, that we flew out to. And we, were, we drove to Muncie, which is a small little town, and then it's just outside of Muncie, and we're going on, like, dirt road, like Road 109 in this, this just cornfields on one side and, and soy on the other. And, and Dave and I were two California kids, and we're like, we're lost. This, there cannot – like, this is a – you know, billion dollar company cannot be in the middle of nowhere. And then we crest what amounted to be a hill in Muncie. And there's this huge complex with Garfield on the, you know, on the top of the building. And he gives us this tour and shows us this huge room. That's the size of, you know, maybe like six or seven conference rooms, just chock full of Garfield stuff, like Garfield on pet food, on baby food, on jackets, uh, anything, you know, countless books in so many languages. And I turned to him, I'm like, Jim, this is amazing what Garfield has been on over the years. This is incredible. And he goes, oh, no, this is just what Garfield was licensed for this year. Oh, wow. It just blew me away. Well, see, I, I joke about, you know, him being asleep. But the truth is, if it wasn't for all that marketing, I probably wouldn't have known Garfield as much as a kid. I watched the cartoon show, um, the Christmas special where John goes home to the farm, the Halloween special, the 
you know, I watched all that stuff. I bought the books. I had the slide rule. I had the Trapper Keeper with Garfield on it. Um, I think I still have a folder somewhere with him with a chainsaw going through a computer. <laughs> so, I mean, the marketing works. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, the first book I ever paid for with my own money as a child, which is a big thing, um, was that second Garfield book. It was the blue one. Um, uh, and so, that, you know, something about it, it, it got out there and was in the public consciousness so that, you know, a seven-year-old kid would would want to spend the money he had saved on on that on a Garfield book. Um, so there's something to be said for that. It, I, I do appreciate Watterson's point of view as well, but I think there's room for both to sort of exist. Um, just like you know, just like there's a way for the way web cartoonists do it and the way syndicated cartoonists do it to exist um, side by side. I hope you know. Yeah, I kind of find a happy medium there. Uh, now, you actually got to talk with some really cool people, like legends cool. I mean, obviously, we've talked about Bill Watterson a bit, a bit but I mean, you got to meet Mort Walker, who did uh, Beetle Bailey and High and Lois. I mean, there's there's some big names in the in the comic strip world that you got to speak with. Was there anyone that you just went in and thought, Holy cow! I cannot believe I'm getting to speak with this person. And, you know, was there anybody that kind of kind of set you back like that? I mean, we we were such fans, Dave and I, that um, almost everybody was like a treat for us to come. You know, what a treat to go to Mort Walker Studio in Connecticut um, and be able to watch him draw and talk to him for two hours and. I mean, it was just amazing. So Mort Walker was, I was blown away just by getting to go to his studio, which is in, uh, it's in Connecticut. And it's, um, uh, it used to be the artist who, who made Mount Rushmore's old studio. So it looks like this big castle and it has like a scale model of Mount Rushmore built into the fireplace. So it's really interesting space. And then also Mort Walker has been doing cartoons, you know, for what, 60 years now. Like, and he has this unbelievable collection of art of cartoon art all throughout the place. So we were looking at, you know, original Norman Rockwells and original like Prince Valiants and, peanuts and all this stuff and then also you know more walkers there drawing beetle bailey you know the guy is in his 80s and had the most precise line like when he drew beetle bailey it was mad it was like magic it was like watching a magic trip trick happen so that was really special um talking to uh lynn johnston being able to go up to canada and talk to her who she does uh, for better or for worse was pretty amazing um, to be able to also go into her studio and and see see her draw and and all that and Jim Davis was frankly a really big um, big guy to be able to meet um, just someone who has had such a huge cultural impact you know it, it's hard pressed to find anybody who doesn't know Garfield you know or isn't even who isn't just aware of Garfield. So it's kind of crazy that one man has had such a huge impact on um, the world with his 
with his little, you know, drawing of a cat. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I'm kind of switching back to the difference between the the web comics and the print comics. Do you kind of do you wonder, or is it even discussed in the film whether or not the web comics will ever be seen on equal footing with the the print guys? Yes, I mean, I I think there's no no question that that's happening. Like it's just um, it's a it's a moving train that's not stopping. Like I think that's where where comics are going. Um, so in terms of respect and in terms of of the quality of work being done on the web, I think it's no question that it's of the similar, equal, if not better quality than um, the traditional print guys. The big difference, I think, is I don't know if we'll ever have a comic strip that'll have the same amount of cultural impact that, say, uh, Peanuts or Garfield or Calvin and Hobbes had. Like, I don't don't know if Penny Arcade, like, Penny Arcade is huge, but are they going to have the dense worldwide that that Garfield did. I don't know. I think that might be a little apples to oranges. And and honestly, between everyone here on the call, you're kind of the expert. <laughs> well, you made the film. You, know, you, you went through all that. But from growing up in the, well, I wasn't really a Peanuts generation, but I was Calvin and Hobbes and Farside generation. And then now enjoying the Penny Arcade, you know, since its very beginning. It's... The culture has changed slightly, and not just in comics, but society has changed. And there are kids who have grown up, and all they've ever known is Penny Arcade, and to them, it's a big deal. And you have the Penny Arcade Expo, both East and West. You have Child's Play. They have, you know, charities that they've been running. And it's kind of hard to say, yeah, but they're not on some cat food. So how big could they be? It's true. I They... They do have an enormous impact. I, I will not disagree with that. But just in terms of, uh, at one point, you know, um, cartoonists were regular guests on like The Tonight Show. And you would go into a restaurant and people would recognize, oh, that's Milton Kniff over there. He made, you know, names that we've forgotten at this point, quite frankly, like how many people know who Milton Kniff is now. But at the time, there was no bigger celebrity because there weren't, there wasn't as much media. It was like, you know, newspapers, radio and movies, and then later television. And now we have so much media that's sort of, you know, vying for our attention that I don't know if if we'll ever have, you know, a comic artist that's really having that, that huge of a cultural impact. You know, Penny Arcade is huge, but to a niche, audience ultimately you know garfield is making you know somewhere between 600 million and a, and a billion dollars and penny arcade i think is is like maybe three and a half million dollars uh which is not insignificant insignificant but is just not on the same scale you know the, the thing about the newspaper at, in its heyday was everybody read the newspaper young old you know men, women, everybody knew the newspaper and, and, and at least one of those strips was hitting all of those four quadrants. You know, I, I'm hard pressed to think that, um, my parents and their grandchildren are going to know about Penny Arcade, but they will know about Calvin Hobbes and Peanuts. 
I think you're exactly right there, Fred. I was actually just thinking that exact same thing. My mom knows who Garfield is. My wife knows who Garfield is. Neither one of them know Penny Arcade. And a lot of and a lot of the jokes. I mean, they Penny Arcade is is. I mean, a lot of the times for for hardcore gamers, you know, like my folks are not going to get you know jokes about Titanfall. That's just not going to be on their their radar. You You're know? referencing yesterday's strip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, which I think is a great strip. Uh, but uh, you know, if my if my mom reads that, you know, that's it's going to be gibberish to her. Um, at the same time, I think that allows for a lot of interesting creative expression because precisely they don't have to cater to the you know the fifty year old woman who's reading the strip and the five year old kid that's reading the strip. They can specifically target you know the people they are and who like them and don't have to worry about watering down their content for anybody. They can make a strip you know that's as obscure or as broad as they want and still be very successful at it you know now this question might be better answered by dave if he were here but do you ever find that people uh, i'm not even really sure how to ask this we've had jonathan colton on the show who internet junkies know as a prolific songwriter right and one of the co-founders of patreon right uh yeah i believe so yeah yeah uh we had graham stark from loading ready run uh, who makes really awesome comedy sketch videos. We've had Whitney Avalon. We've had Stephanie Thorpe, David Nett. We've had a lot of internet people on, and they all kind of say the same thing. People ask, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm an award-winning songwriter. I'm an award-winning, you know, video, videographer or series creator. Oh, that's really interesting. On the internet. Oh, well, you know, maybe one day you can have a real job. Do you ever still kind of get that feeling when it comes to these poor web comic artists who make more money than I do in a year doing this stuff on the internet? Yeah, I mean that was a question we we asked a lot of um, the web cartoonists was you know when you're sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, how do you explain to your aunt and uncle you know what you do because they don't get it <laughs> you know and um, it's a hard thing to to get a to get across, and usually um, you have to to compare it to something that they're familiar with somehow and connect it that way. Um, but we have what we try to do in the movie is um, we put a sequence in there about how um, how do you make a living uh, as a web cartoonist, and we did this sort of animated video game sequence that shows it as a you know, an old 18, eight or not 18, eight bit video game journey that a cartoonist has to go, go through. So it, it's a lot of, exp- you know, you have to do a lot of explanation, but the simplest way is to say that the internet almost functions because you give it away for free as an advertisement for all your merchandise which is not given away for free. So your books, your posters, your T-shirts, your stuffed animals, all the stuff that um, you can sell associated with your strip is what's making you money. And on top of that, um, advertising. So it's like television um, in which it appears that TV is free, but there are ads you know, that are paying for that free television 
you know, it's the broadcast to television method. And so it's a combination of those things that you're able to make a living. It's not a Jim Davis living, but in the case of some people like Pity Arcade, it can be a very lucrative living that you're making. And some of these webcomic artists, I mean, a friend of the program, Howard Taylor, who does Schlock Mercenary, he's been doing that daily now for longer than Calvin and Hobbes ever ran. Yeah, Every Howard day for 13 years now. Howard is awesome and has some of the most devoted fans I've ever seen. Well, we're, we're three of them right here. Yeah, I mean, people love, love, love Schlock Mercenary. And his interaction with his fans, I think, is, is actually really beautiful. And I think what is almost the ideal of what you want from an artist to audience reaction to be, you know, because he is really, I mean, he's really concerned about people um, enjoying the strip and, but still being true to the story of it. And he interacts, I think, in a really amazing daily way with his readers. Um, he's also incredibly disciplined, uh, which a lot of um, uh, web comic artists, you know, don't have the same amount of discipline where he's working ahead quite a bit and has his storylines really figured out and is really committed to not missing those deadlines. Um, so he's updating regularly. You know, as, it, as opposed to like real life comics. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause it's hard. It's a hard thing to be funny every day and to create characters every day that are relatable and interesting in situations and basically do the same thing but different every day. And it can take its toll. I think it I think it took its toll on Bill Watterson, to be honest. I think he was um, he was really striving with every strip to make this the best comic strip he'd ever done and was really trying to, and I think it was the writing that was really the, the difficult thing to really write a, a beautiful strip every day. And that was just taking so much time and he wasn't able, you know, maybe to spend as much time with his family as he wanted to. And so I, th- I think, and I can't say this for sure, but I think that's um, the main reason why he stepped away from the strip is um, because it was just taking over his life. And that was his whole whole reason for being was the strip and he didn't want that to be that way well you know that's interesting because that kind of reminds me of bill amend with foxtrot and yeah that's that's another one of my favorites and he was doing those every day and a few years ago he came out and said okay i'm only doing sunday comics from here on out because i want to continue doing this and i'm not going to want to continue doing this if i have to keep doing it every day for the next 20 years yeah we got to talk to Bill, um, who's also, you know, good friends with, um, with Watterson. And I think they share a camaraderie about that. Um, but Bill, Bill had to step away because it was just, he was, you know, knocking his head against the wall, trying to come up with a great strip idea where, you know, it'd take 12 hours to come up with a, a great, um, daily strip. And the other thing is you have to work so far ahead in the newspaper, you have to get it out you know, so far advance. And then um, if you miss those deadlines, you start paying penalty fees. And he started paying all these penalty fees because he was always late turning in his strip. 
And, you know, it, it finally just got ridiculous. And he's like, I just have to step back. If I want this to maintain the quality that I want it to be at, I can only do this once a week. Sorry, we, we, I kind of felt like we had to bring up Howard Taylor because he is a local. <laughs> he's a local. He's been on our show in person. He's an awesome no, guy. No, <laughs> he's, he's, he's in our movie and, um, and a, a real important part of our movie. And I love, I love Howard Taylor and his work on Schlock Mercenaries. He's, he's, he's great and has been really supportive of the project as well. Um, hey, before we, we wrap up here, we only have like another you know eight minutes or so, but, but let's talk about the movie itself, okay? About how long of a movie are we talking is like feature length film. Yeah, it's a, it's a feature. It's, it's a slim 85 minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, we talked to about 70 different cartoonists over the course of, you know, four or five years. And, um, what's great about that is we're also going to be making a lot of the uncut interviews available. So, if you want to just see, because we couldn't get everybody in the movie and we couldn't get all the great stuff that they said in the movie. We had to sort of tailor it to our story. But I think there's a demand from a lot of the fans that they want to see everything that, you know, Howard Taylor said or everything that Bill Ahmed said. And what's great about releasing it on the internet is we can have those. So we're going to have 15 of those uncut interviews at first available, you know, to download off of Strip.com stripfilm.com um so you can see that so you can see all of howard taylor's you know interview and everything he had to say now there's been i mean not only did waterson agree to be interviewed which kind of blew everyone's mind when they found out that he's his voice is actually in the movie but he did your poster which you already mentioned uh but there's also been a lot of support in who did your score yeah so we were very lucky and uh, Stefan Lassard of the Dave Matthews Band, the bassist from the Dave Matthews Band, agreed to do our score and did this amazing um, musical journey for us that you know transcends time. You know, time. He does like stuff that sounds like Django Reinhardt and other stuff that sounds like Philip Glass, and did this amazing score that sort of connects the whole movie together. Uh, again, just super lucky that. Um, he was a huge, you know, he loves comics and uh, said to us that Bill Watterson's his favorite artist of all time and uh, was really supportive of the project. That's really awesome. And again, awesome. You got Watterson's poster on there. Now um, I know that at the premiere on the 26th, there's going to be a giveaway, but I also thought I read on your site that there's other posters. Are you going to be selling those or not? Yet, um, there's, uh, we're doing a limited run that went out to our Kickstarter supporters and then we're hoping to tour the movie around to about 10 different, 10 or 15 different cities. And at each of the screenings, we're going to try to give away about 10 of the posters, um, to some lucky fans. Um, but right now that's sort of the only way people are going to be able to get it. Okay. Um, now <laughs> Just, I, I want Hide one your so disappointment. Bad. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I want one so bad. I gotta tell you, Fred, that is just that is awesome. Um, yeah, I, I want one. I'm jealous. I'm gonna cry here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no. Uh, so before we wrap up, there's I think there's one question that a lot of people want to know, and maybe you can't answer it because you answer it in in the film, and it'll spoiler. Um, but 
our comic our comic strips dead is, is that a dead medium at this point is print let's, let's is, rephrase is, that yes sorry is is print comic strips dead are print comic strips dead? I, wow bad grammar i would actually reword that because <laughs> i wanted to ask this earlier and i thought we moved past it but uh, let me rephrase zoner's question and kind of merge it with my own can we ever go back to how it was at the heyday of the newspaper print? Well, that's tough to answer just in terms of you never know what the future is going to have. But in my opinion and from what I've seen, I, I don't think we'll ever see see that again. I don't think we'll ever see um, people reading the newspaper the way that they did in the 20s and 30s and 40s. Um, I think just that culture has shifted. Um, maybe it'll come back in a, in a different way. I, I don't know. But right now it seems like, um, you know, the web is the future. Like the Internet has been the most tr- transformative communication device in history. Um, and when you look at something presented on on the web and on a tablet there's a great we we interviewed scott mcleod in the in the uh documentary and he has a great quote where he says every new incarnation of technology makes the previous incarnation look barbaric and that's that's immediately true when you go down and look at you know the printing presses involved in making a newspaper as opposed to hitting send on an email like it just seems barbaric, and I I just don't think that's going to be um, as prominent as it as it once was. Very very good. Um, hey, before we we go, let's let's talk again. People can visit the site uh, strippedfilm.com, uh, where you have a trailer up. Yes, very well done trailer, by the way. And that's oh, a weird thank thing you. To compliment someone on, but it really <laughs> is. It's it's a well done trailer. It's all done by our really talented editor Ben Waters did that he's amazing um again the pre-order is up right now you can pre-order the film on itunes.com when it comes out how much i mean is that a faux pas to say how much it's going to cost or no it's going to be uh 14.99 in hd i think it's going to be uh 12 or less in standard def and then i think around four if you want to rent it um all on itunes and if it, it please you know please um Please order it on on iTunes. You can pre-order it now, but we're really trying to get that um, number one spot on iTunes. Uh, we don't know if it's possible, but we're just you know two guys that are trying to to do do something just just to see if we can do it. And then after that, on April second, if you go to stripfilm.com, we'll have the movie uh, there, you know, DRM free, and we'll also have fifteen uncut interviews you can buy either separate or as a package and um, some other fun stuff um, we're hoping to post there as uh, the year progresses now now loyal stolen droids listeners i can't promise a prize or anything so i'm not don't get your hopes up but please remember that april 1st is our birthday uh it's our birthday for the site and it's our birthday for the podcast so great gift for us would be if you went and pre-ordered this show so you can buy yourself a present on us Thank you, guys. Yes, and happy birthday in the future. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, Fred, I can't tell you what a joy it's been talking comics with you. I'm so excited to see this film come out. Um, there's nothing more I can say other than thank you for bringing this to us. 
Oh, guys, thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. I, I could talk comics all day, every day, and this has been a real treat, and uh, I really appreciate your support and interest. Awesome. Well, uh, again, this has been another episode of Stolen Droids Presents. This has been a Stolen Droids Media Production.